And we are going to be looking at, uh, first and foremost, a little bit of, inf- uh, of information coming to us from China overnight. There's uh, a bit of data there that caught the market's attention. We'll, we'll take a look at it and see if it's as optimistic as it seems. And then secondly, we have some data uh, coming our way today from the euro area which might have some uh, very significant implications for both the euro uh, and also the region as a whole, and then, by extension, the global economy, global markets, Wall Street, stocks everywhere, including the U.S., etc., etc. So there's quite a lot to get through here, so we're just going to jump right in. First... Let's take a look at what came out of China yesterday. And I point us um, to these purchasing manager index numbers. You can see them in the green. They came out much higher than expected. Uh, The CFLP numbers are those from uh, China's uh, official logistics agency. So this is a government report. And then the Kaishin alternative is from S&P Global. So uh, we have here the kind of data that were you to be skeptical of numbers that come out officially from Beijing, there's certainly a lot of um, chatter about those numbers being variously shaded as relative to economic reality. But this is positive all around. Even the Kaishin numbers are giving us strong results. And so we're going to take a look and see what this means. Here they go visually. So in particular, you can see significant expansion recorded uh, in manufacturing. The economy really moving into a more expansionary phase here. Significant expansion in services, uh, ostensibly because folks that have been locked down are starting to come out and starting to uh, make some of those pent-up purchases that they couldn't make uh, during the uh, the lockdowns. The, uh, a chart that we don't have here that we'll attempt to build for you for next week is a chart of Chinese bank deposits, which have been swelling. So there's a ton of spending that didn't get done and now looks to be uh, coming out there, hence the pickup in services. So this reopening from COVID lockdowns in December, which really had a hard time getting off the ground, was quite a uh, quite a while before we actually saw uh, the population in China really take uh, and really believe that um, it was in fact okay to uh, engage with this rule relaxation. That seems to be now in the rear view, and the economy seems to be coming back to life with quite a bit of a pop. Now, this is um, as we mentioned yesterday evident in the way that Chinese economic data has performed relative to expectations. You can see it is meaningfully improved. So data is performing much better than uh, economists anticipate. Uh, Some of that seems to be that the second wave of COVID that people were expecting uh, around the reopening and around then the Chinese New Year uh, migration that usually happens where folks leave cities and come back into the countryside, ostensibly uh, ostensibly bringing COVID with them, Uh, that seems to all have uh, kind of blended together into one wave, which is now already 
seemingly on the decline. So certainly a lot of vigor here. We saw this anecdotally by looking at metro traffic in the top five cities in China. This here is the average of those five cities and a 20-day moving average on top of that to make this a little bit smoother. And you can see a dramatic surge in metro activity telling you that consumers are back outside economic activity is starting to hum along. We are looking at metro traffic at the strongest levels since before the outbreak at this point. So clearly, China's economy is finding its legs here a a bit. The issue, of course, is that investors don't seem particularly excited. We mentioned this yesterday, and it remains the case today, If there were all this optimism about China reopening, you should see money start to be deployed to take advantage. So on the one hand, you should see flows. This is the Shanghai Hong Kong Stock Connect, which allows folks on the mainland with access to Shanghai to trade directly on Hong Kong's bourses giving them a sort of outlet into the outside world. And it allows folks with access to Hong Kong shares to trade directly in Shanghai, offering people externally access to the mainland. If there were this optimism, you should see, one would think, a pickup in turnover here, because some of that pent-up demand we just mentioned uh, elevated bank deposits, some of that demand should be going outside, to now that restrictions have been lifted, take advantage. And certainly there should be a good bit of it going the other way, coming in to take advantage of China's economic revitalization. That clearly is not occurring here. It's also very telling that the top in this turnover seems to be around the middle of 2021, which is exactly the time when the Fed began to unveil its rate hike intentions that it would then make good on come the beginning of last year. You can see a slow drift lower in turnover. So there's not exactly a stampede of investors here looking to take advantage of a China reopening, which now has solid evidence behind it. And this is perhaps why. So what you have here uh, is the Bloomberg Index of Commodity Prices. This is just a global broad-based index. China is the world's largest importer of almost all commodities. It processes them. It uses them for inputs. So to the extent that China occupies the middle tier of the global supply chain, whereby it imports a ton of raw materials, uses its labor resources to assemble those materials into nearly finished or finished goods, depending on what we're talking about, and then ships them to developed markets for consumption. You have a situation where commodity inflation is going to be a very China-driven sort of thing. Overlay that with CPI and with PCE, the top measures of U.S. inflation, and uh, lag it by just a month, a single month. 
And what you see is you have a situation here where the rise in commodity prices was very much a part of the initial surge in inflation. That, of course, the kind of thing that gets undone by fixing supply chains. You can see that the rise in commodities begins right at the outbreak of COVID in the early part of 2020. You then see it start to peak around the middle of 2022. This is as China doubles down on zero COVID. This is as the Fed really starts to get busy hiking rates. And what you see in response is commodity prices come off, so too does inflation. Well, what happens if China reopens and commodity demand rebuilds? Well, in a world that's uh, already hobbled uh, by various commodities disruptions, uh, not least of which is uh, the Russia-Ukraine war, chances are commodity prices probably go up in that environment. Well, what does that mean for U.S. CPI? Well, clearly, if past relationships hold, it's inflationary in the U.S. And of course, as we've seen throughout the month of February, when you get evidence of inflationary forces, you get concerns about Fed rate hikes. This right here uh, is a chart of uh, Fed rate hike expectations for the July and the September meeting. The expectation now uh, still is that we're going to get the peak in rates somewhere in there. So August, September or so. And you can see that in February, on the strength of inflationary U.S. economic data, those expectations have gone up. On the bottom of the chart, what you see there is the S&P 500, so just a baseline measure of U.S. stocks and global risk sentiment. This is the ES future of the S&P 500. And I've put a little five-day moving average on it just to smooth it out, make it easier to visualize what's going on. Those are the dotted lines there. What you see is as you get the upturn in rate expectations, you get a downturn in risk. Stocks fall. The entire time that those two lines, the blue and the red, were moving sideways because the markets were convinced that the Fed was, if not done, then certainly signaling that the end is nigh for the rate hike cycle. That's what the markets had concluded throughout November, December, January. Stock markets were able to rise. You can see the trend is of higher highs and higher lows. That trend is broken now. Looking at um, what we have here, largely because of a pickup in rate hike expectations because of inflationary, um, inflationary cues in jobs data, in CPI data, in FOMC minutes, in retail sales numbers, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if this is what holds and China's reopening is going to send that commodity index line back higher, it's likely to send inflation higher as well. And of course, that's not good news for stocks, as we can see here. That's the dark side of what's going on in China for global markets. And perhaps the reason why the markets are not more enthused. Perhaps the reason there isn't money chasing this as though it's the great second coming of risk appetite for global financial markets. Now, the next thing we're going to talk about, as promised, is the situation with the euro. 
And here, we, we had uh, a prelim number on inflation from Germany overnight. You can see it came in a little bit warmer than expected, held at 8.7% against expectations of uh, a slight downtick to 8.5. What we have over the next uh, day here are the Eurozone equivalent figures. Expectation is for a move lower from 8.6 to 8.2. The German number is such a dominant indicator here uh, because Germany is the largest economy in the region that we probably get a little bit of an upside surprise that's already baked in. Um, so maybe we mute the impact a little, but nevertheless, important to watch. Uh, and uh, we're also going to get the core number that's stripping out volatile items. That's expected to hold unchanged at 5.3. And we'll see if that goes or if we actually get uh, some sort of a misstep there. Critically also to offer context to all of this will be minutes from the last ECB policy meeting where uh, you'll recall the ECB delivered a 50 basis point rate hike and pre-announced another 50 basis point rate hike in March. Essentially told the markets, don't even worry about speculating about March. We'll tell you what we'll do. We'll go again. And then after March, we'll see. So, Here's what that looks like. You can see that here we have the rise in inflation. The bars in the back, the yellow bars, are the German 10-year break-even rate. This is the uh, market's expectation of inflation as derived from taking the difference between nominal and real yields. That, of course, uh, gives you the magnitude of the inflationary adjustment that takes you from nominal to real. That's just taking the nominal rate, subtracting inflation expectations. That's how you end up at a real yield. So it's that inflation adjustment that we're interested in. That's the break-even rate. You can see here that around the middle of last year, the break-even rate hit some sort of a peak and started to move lower. You can see also that if you lag major measures of inflation, both in Germany and in the Eurozone, against that, you can see that they pulled back as well. Very similar to how there's about a two-month lag between shorter-term um, break-even rates in the U.S., which unfortunately in the Eurozone are not liquid, so we have to use the 10-year if we want to get something sensible. Um, and CPI... PCE. They usually follow U.S. break-evens about two months later. Here, it seems like uh, there's a six-month lag. The 10-year the uh, mark on the break-even is probably, at least to some extent, why that lag is a little bit longer. But nevertheless, the relationship is the same. And what you see is that over more recent months, inflation seems to have started to creep higher, much as it has in the U.S. So some of the recent readings here that we see on the break-even are meaningfully higher. In fact, we are, for the last uh, two months here, toying with levels that are the highest they've been since that initial mid-2022 spike. So there is ostensibly an inflation issue here that's not going away. You saw it, I think, in uh, the German numbers here overnight. They didn't fall as anticipated. The Eurozone numbers, as you can see on the screen here, still expected to dip a little bit. We'll see if they do tonight. If they don't, as the German lead would suggest, then indeed, this relationship is going to continue to hold.
and for decent reasoning. We can see that looking at manufacturing and services and then the collection of the two, the composite PMIs for the Eurozone, have turned up. Uh, manufacturing is still in uh, contractionary uh, territory nominally, but services and the composite are back to growth. They're back above 50 and expanding in that direction. So growing faster over the past two months, accelerating. Um, as with the U.S., services is the biggest component of the economy. So this is good news. This is part and parcel of why inflation would be back on the upswing. We can see that apart from the last week, week and a half maybe, we are seeing better than expected economic data relative to expectations. So uh, it's outperforming. And yet, since the last ECB meeting, the yield curve has hardly shifted, which is a bit out of step with everything else we're seeing. If there is going to be more inflation, and growth is finding some green shoots, and overall economic data is steadily improving, but for a blip recently. How is it that since the beginning of February, this policy curve has essentially held steady? This is as we get aggressively hawkish rhetoric from the um, ECB uh, just overnight here. Yet another ECB policymaker came out and said, we have to keep hiking. Hiking and hiking and hiking. This is a rhetoric um, that we've heard from all corners at the central bank, including the president, Christine Lagarde. So how is it that this yield curve is not pricing in any kind of meaningful shift since at the beginning of this month, the ECB came out, gave us that 50 basis point rate hike, and pre-announced the one in March? Well, it's not only that inflation is the issue, it's also sovereign stability. And what we're looking at here in the blue is uh, the future uh, implied rate, current active, uh, on the ECB's benchmark. And you can see it's been rising since the middle of um, 2021, right alongside global tightening everywhere, as led by the Fed, which, of course, the ECB ultimately joined. We can see that for the past several months, it's flatlined. So we don't seem to be really building out significantly more rate hikes here, which would be consistent with what we're seeing in the yield curve holding steady. And what we see in parallel is that the spread between Italian and German 10-year bond yields has started to ease back having been rising with rate hike expectations. Now, why is this the case? Rate hikes in the euro area are somewhat fraught with danger, inherently speaking. This is because you are applying the same monetary policy, the same rising interest rates, to very different economies. And you don't have a federal system like you do in the U.S. to provide stabilizers. Consider the counterexample. In the U.S., if Texas is booming and California is in recession, there is a federal government that will collect higher tax receipts from Texas because of the pickup in economic activity. 
and then have that extra capital to provide aid to California to fund unemployment benefits and what have you. That's an automatic stabilizer that evens out the business cycle differences between Texas and California. Nothing like this exists in the euro area, despite the fact that they have a single central bank setting interest rates for everybody, which means you end up in situations oftentimes where one set of economies needs higher rates, another set of economies needs lower rates, but you only have the one rate. So the contrast oftentimes is captured by comparing Italy and Germany. Italy is one of the uh, more indebted, highly indebted countries uh, in Southern Europe, and also the third largest economy in the Euro area, after Germany and France. Germany is the largest economy and not very indebted at all. Uh, it's, it's quite fiscally conservative. Consider borrowing costs. Who would you rather lend to? Somebody with a lot of debt, where you would just be lending to add to a big and growing pile. So this would be lending to someone without a history of paying back and with an already big debt burden to service, whereby you would be last in line after a long line of others. And so the likelihood that your debt is serviced, even lower. Whereas in Germany, you have a very prudent view on paying down debts. And debts are very much contained. Well, obviously, you are going to be more likely to offer favorable terms to Germany where the risk of non-payment is much lower than in Italy. The risk of some sort of debt crisis is much lower. And so what people often do is they look at the spread between those interest rates. Better terms would be lower rates. Higher rates would reflect an extra risk premium on lending because a place is riskier. And Italy is riskier than Germany because of, uh, of how much debt it has. So when that spread widens, that gives you greater sense of credit risk in Italy as relative to Germany. But of course, since everybody is tied up in the euro, it also means instability risk within the eurozone. Because it means that either the ECB has to ratchet up rates to control inflation, do what's right for Germany, force Italy into some sort of very painful credit adjustment, perhaps as bad and so painful that it could force them out of the, uh, the currency such that they could then devalue and let the debts become a little bit more manageable. That, of course, is a huge risk in its own right. Or the ECB could let inflation run, not push back against it as vigorously, which would, of course, hurt the euro. Because if inflation is rampant and the central bank is not going to hike rates, when the currency is indeed succumbing to those inflationary forces which means that the price of things in terms of the currency are falling, 
for external folks, but rising internally, which, of course, is a very, very painful situation for Eurozone consumers. And so that's the kind of situation that bears its own instability risks, but more so than anything, it encourages capital flight out of the euro as its purchasing power deteriorates relative to other currencies. And so on the one hand, the ECB finds itself in a situation where if it moves quickly and with some vigor and energy in containing inflation, it risks a sovereign crisis where people start worrying about countries like Italy and by extension, Spain and, um, and Portugal. And if you don't, and of course, such a crisis would be bad for the euro. Or they don't do that. The euro loses value as inflation runs unchecked and falls anyway. In either case, the implications for global risk appetite are, are, are considerable. The former, though, is probably scarier and presents global instability risks, global risk aversion risks, while the latter could even maybe have a bit of a silver lining in that Europe, and in particular Germany, are export-led, uh, export at least uh, for a lot of the uh, more successful economies. Certainly, Germany is the largest economy, is a major exporter. And so a cheaper currency is, to some extent, something of, of a tailwind. Makes your goods cheaper, makes it imported goods comparatively more expensive, so at the same time, it drives capital from domestic consumers to domestic producers, and at the same time, makes domestic producers' wares more competitive on global markets for international buyers. So the price of the ECB's rock-in-a-hard-place situation here seems to be a weaker euro any way you slice it. It's just fewer rate hikes seems to be the cheaper cost of doing that than is sovereign instability. So as we look at these numbers that come out from uh, from uh the Eurozone tonight on CPI, and as we hear what is in those ECB meeting minutes, it will be very important to gauge where the ECB's mind is on all of this. If inflation is a little bit warmer, but then the minutes are a little bit worried about sovereign instability, that tells you a direction. If the minutes suggest the ECB is going to keep hiking aggressively, that gives direction, but it seems like almost either way you go, the ultimate implications for both of these things is a weaker euro, which we may see in markets here continuing to uh, develop. There was a, a little bit of a euro uptick today, but that follows a month-long decline in February, and perhaps the next leg of that move is nigh. And that has been Macro Money. Once again, I am Ilya Spivak, head of global macro here at Tasty Live. We do this show Monday through Thursday 
every week right after overtime with our friend Chris Vecchio, head of futures and Forex at Tasty Live. Other than those, you can catch me on first call with Tom and Tony Sunday evenings. Uh, that's at um, 5 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Central, and um, then also outside of those shows on Twitter at Ilya Spivak. Thanks very much for joining, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow. Happy trading. The content of this podcast is created, produced, and provided solely by Tasty Life Inc. and does not represent the direct views or opinions of any of its affiliated companies. This content is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not, nor is it intended to be trading or investment advice or a recommendation that any security, futures contract, digital asset, other product, transaction, or investment strategy is suitable for any person. Trading securities, futures products, and digital assets involve risk and may result in a loss greater than the original amount invested. Tasty Live Inc., through its content, financial programming, or otherwise, does not provide investment or financial advice or make investment recommendations. The information provided may not be appropriate for all investors and is provided without respect to individual investor financial sophistication, financial situation, investing time horizon, or risk tolerance. Tasty Live Inc. is not a licensed financial advisor, registered investment advisor, or registered broker-dealer.